Our Old Testament lesson this morning uh, comes from Prophet Isaiah, chapter 60, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. This comes out of a portion of Isaiah that scholars call Third Isaiah, or if you want to be really fancy, Trito Isaiah. Uh, Third Isaiah was written during the return from exile. The people are returning from Babylon, and they're coming back to Jerusalem, and they're trying to figure out just what to do now that they're coming back to a place that was abandoned 60, 70 years ago by them, and there are still people living there. How do you reconcile with all of this? And Isaiah, in this portion, is writing with hope in the return. Listen now, for the Spirit is speaking to the church. Arise, shine, your light has come, the Lord's glory has shone upon you. Though darkness covers the earth and gloom the nations, the Lord will shine upon you. God's glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to your dawning radiance. Lift up your eyes and look all around. They are all gathered. They have come to you. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters on caregivers' hips. Then you will see and be radiant your heart will tremble and open wide, because the sea's abundance will be turned over to you. The nation's wealth will come to you. Countless camels will cover your land, young camels from Midian and Ephah. They will all come from Sheba, carrying gold and incense, proclaiming the Lord's praises. The word of God for the people of God. Now, in the early church, my friends, there were three, count them, three major holidays that set the calendar for the Christian year. Three big festivals, feasts, they were called. Can you think of what those three might be? Call out any one of them. Easter. Easter. Okay, Easter's one of them, absolutely. What other festivals might there have been that set the calendar for the early church? I'm sorry? Uh, festival of Booths was a Jewish festival that wasn't in the early church as much in the Gentile world. Good, good thinking. What other festivals? Epiphany. Okay, yeah, yeah. Somebody knew it was today. I said it. Yeah. Epiphany is number two. There's one more. What do you think the third major festival was? What was that? Christmas was not one of them. That's the point I'm making, but good guess. We certainly use Christmas as our big, one of our big days in the year now. What do you think the third one was? This one's a little trickier. I hear Pentecost, that's correct. Yes. Easter, the feast of the resurrection. Pentecost, the feast of the power of the Holy Spirit. And Epiphany, the feast of the revelation of God to humanity. Now, Christmas wasn't one of those. How is Epiphany and not Christmas. The early church um, saw Epiphany as the day of celebrating the revelation of, God, of Jesus as God's son at both Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' birth. Epiphany was the day that got both baptism and birth into one holiday. Now, on the front of your bulletin, it says that today is baptism of the Lord, which is true in a strictly calendar sense, but we're going to handle that celebration next week. 
Today, we're going to look at Epiphany. Epiphany, also called Twelfth Night, happens 12 days after Christmas Day. 12 days of Christmas, you've heard of that before. That means that Epiphany is always January 6th. Now, if you're counting up, January 6th was a couple days ago, and so we're now celebrating Epiphany on the closest Sunday we have to January 6th. If you're following a strict liturgical calendar, you don't take down your Christmas decorations till after Christmas is over on Epiphany, and you have 12 days to enjoy those decorations and remember the birth. Epiphany, the important holiday, celebrating both revelation of Jesus as God's Son at baptism and birth. In the Western church based in Rome, they focused more on the birth and the arrival of the Magi on Epiphany, while the Eastern Church, based in Constantinople, focused on the baptism. Today, most of us in the PCUSA follow the Western tradition, relegating Epiphany to Wise Men Day, the day that we remember the wise men arriving, 12 days after the big celebration of Christmas. There is a certain logic to this idea. After all, some people argue Jesus' birth is the big revelation of God into the world, God with us, Emmanuel. We hear that quite frequently. And the arrival of some random astrologers from Persia or the East, that's not really that big a deal. But I put to you that there is more going on with the Magi than we often give credit to. You know the story. But let's take a look at a few of the details. A star appears in the sky, light streaming either in the east or at its rising. It might mean that the star appeared in the day at the rising of the sun. It was so bright. Could mean that. Seeing the star, magi who were advisors to kings, they were astrologers, wisdom seekers, philosophers, kind of scientists of the ancient world, if you want to think of them that way. I know we don't put much stock in astrology today for good reason, but that was the study of the heavens, the study of nature. What does this all mean? Ancient scientists were the magi. These magi pack up and travel hundreds of miles to Jerusalem, where they stop and ask for directions from King Herod the Great, ruler of the Roman client kingdom of Judea, which stretched across most of modern-day Israel, Jordan, parts of Syria, and Iraq. This is not a tiny little kingdom. The kingdom that Herod is ruling, Herod the Great is ruling, is huge. And these three magi stop and chat with him and say, hey, where is this newborn king of the Jews? They're clearly important people, these magi, that can just stop and talk to Herod on their way. But I'm not sure if asking the king of Judea if he can direct them to the newborn king of the Jews is such a good idea. I wonder if their moniker of wise men is maybe a little overblown asking Herod about this. Herod, though, he consults with his Torah scholars. They tell him Ephrathah, now called Bethlehem, is the place where the king of the Jews, the Messiah, is to be born. And Herod tells the Magi, go, search thoroughly, and come back to me with news of the child, so that I too may go and worship him. Uh-huh, yeah, that's really going to happen. <laughs> Let's look at this in a different way. Herod the Great was not born king of Judea. His father, an Idumean named Antipater, was made proconsul 
This is sort of a military governor by Julius Caesar. Yes, that Julius Caesar. And later confirmed in the position by Crassus after Caesar was assassinated. The following year, after his dad was made military governor of the region, Herod the Great and his brother were made co-governors of the Judean territories by their dad. Nice little nepotism going on. Herod's brother tried to assassinate him, failed, lost the ensuing battle, and Herod took control of the whole region, Herod the Great. Then Herod the Great married the princess Mary Amne and became king of Judea, a client state of Rome. So he was governor, and he became king when he married the princess. This sounds very Star Wars to me, uh, the princess coming out of nowhere, all of this going through. Mariamne, by the way, was a daughter of the Hasmonean family, and the Hasmoneans were the dynasty established by the Maccabees to rule over Judea. There's a non-canonical book called the Book of the Maccabees that talks about what happened in this period, all of the Jewish revolts that were going on. This is all that history tying in, and we just have Herod the Great. Actually, sometimes it just says King Herod in the Bible, and we have to interpret which one is being talked about. By marrying Mariamna, Herod the Great was trying to cement his rule as a proper king, in line with previous dynasties, despite not being of Jewish descent himself. He constantly feared that his rule would be overthrown. He even killed several of his own sons when they seemed to be gathering more popularity than he was. One of the Roman emperors is supposed to have quipped it was better to be Herod's pig than his son, because, of course, Jews don't eat pork, and so the pigs would be around longer than his children. Even when he was on his deathbed, Herod the Great summoned the highest nobles in the kingdom and then ordered them all executed as soon as Herod the Great died so that the whole kingdom would be filled with mourning. Even if they weren't really mourning for Herod, at least there would be lots of mourning going around. This is the kind of guy Herod the Great was. So how do you think he would react to hearing that a child had been born in his kingdom that even foreigners, Gentiles, were hearing about as one born king of the Jews. Born king, given that right by birth. That's a pretty serious threat. And if we were to continue with the Matthew reading, we'd see that Herod the Great reportedly killed all the male children under two years old that he could find, just in case one of them was that boy. Yet the Magi go to him for directions to the newborn king of the Jews. I said before, it's possible these wise men don't deserve that title of wise, except, except that afterwards they don't go back to Herod. They're great at following stars and visions and dreams, great at following divine instruction. Thank goodness, that is the definition of wise, to follow divine instruction, following where God leads. And there's a word in here that gets said a lot and pretty much only in this context in the modern world, paying homage. What's this whole paying homage thing that these wise men are doing? Some translations, modern translations of the Bible even say the wise men worshipped him and just kind of skip over that whole paying homage altogether. The English homage means something akin to saying, I'm your man, or I'm your guy, or I'm, you know, yours, I will follow you. 
to pledge to follow someone. The Greek proskune, that we translate here, means to kiss the hand in a gesture of love and obedience, to kiss someone else's hand and say, I am with you. It's easy to see how convoluted and complicated things were around Jesus' birth. Yet it's also easy to see how the light of the divine reached through the darkness and made clear what was to be done. God finds a way to shine light in the most unexpected places, at the most unexpected times, leading people in ways they never could have expected to cut through the darkness that surrounds and illumine God's love at work in the world. The book of Isaiah reminds us of this most strongly in chapter 60, which we read this morning, where God calls out to the people of Israel, Arise, shine, your light has come. Though darkness covers the earth and gloom the nations, Adonai will shine on you. God's glory will appear over you. God's glory. God's glory is often linked with light in the Bible. Even Moses finds that after being in God's presence on Mount Sinai, his own face shines with light so brightly that he has to wear a veil when he comes around the people or he blinds them and they can't even look at Moses, who was merely in God's presence. That's Exodus 34 if you want to check your work. 1 John reminds us that God is light and James claims that, unlike flame, God's light doesn't flicker or shake. Doesn't flicker or shake. Think about how difficult it would have been before a light bulb, before an LED, uh, to imagine a light source that didn't flicker. We have candles here in front of us today. Torches, even gas lights, have flames that flicker. But God, no flickering. God's light is constant and even. What a miracle that we can experience that with our light bulbs, our LED lights today. After all, even the moon changes phases. Even the sun flickers with sunspots and occasionally is eclipsed by the moon. God's light shines constantly, pushing against darkness. And God's light has one other property. It causes everything it touches to give off light of its own. Isaiah puts it this way. You will see and be radiant. Your heart will tremble and open wide. You will see the light and be radiant. Shine your own light back. Or as Jesus puts it later in his ministry in the Gospel of John, put your heart in the light so that you can become children of the light. The best visual I have of this is seeing things under ultraviolet light. If you've ever worn a white shirt under a UV light, maybe you were glow bowling, maybe you were somewhere else that UV light was going on, you know that white shirts respond to the light by giving off its own light. They fluoresce. Diamond rings do this too, which is why they appear slightly blue and very sparkly under sunlight sunlight having strong UV light. But just like diamonds don't sparkle if they're covered in mud, we tend to think that it's much harder for us to become children of the light, glowing in God's light, if we're covered in the muck of sin. Though, indeed, as Paul reminds us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, 
God's glory is stronger than all of our effort to get away. I'm going to say that again. God's glory is stronger than all of our effort to get away. There's nothing we can do that God can't shine through and cause us to shine through as well. Indeed, God picks us up, wipes away the mud, reminds us how to shine with God's own light in the world. That is the beauty of epiphany. We worship this light-emitting deity who causes us to carry light into the dark world of destruction and despair. Nothing we can do can separate us from God's light and love, which God proved by revealing God's self to us as Jesus, the newborn king. God's light reached the Jews and the Gentiles alike, and God's light shines through everyone. A little bit later in the service, we'll come to the communion table, called by God to remember Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. To take communion is to be given a little bit of God's light into our diamond of a body and respond by shining God's light into the world. If we can remember that God's light overcomes all darkness, even mine, even yours, and that like the Magi, we are called to follow where God's light leads, then communion is a joyous occasion of God's revelation, God's epiphany, time and time again. And so, may you follow the light of God wherever it leads you. May you be filled with the light of the Holy Spirit to shine from you on every path you take, whether it's the one you expected to take or not. May the light of Jesus shine from the face of all you encounter that you can know that we are all children of the light. Amen.